We are in the second Sunday of Advent, and of course, Advent means coming or arrival. And these four Sundays are times of preparation for celebrating the first coming of Christ. But it's also to anticipate his second coming. This year, our Advent series is called Jesus, the name above all names. And we're looking at different passages concerning the names and the titles of Jesus at his first coming and the impact that this ought to have on believers. Last week we looked at what it meant in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 when the angel appeared before Joseph and told him to wed Mary and that when the child was to be born he would name this child Jesus. And the angel explains why he is to be named Jesus, because he was coming to save us from our sins. The name Jesus means God is our salvation. And then we looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when Paul wrote about the humility of Jesus and that he left the experience of glory and came to this earth as a man and yet without sin to save us from our sins. And then when he rose from the dead and was ascended back to heaven, God the Father gave him the name that is above all names. A combination of Jesus, Christ, meaning the anointed one or Messiah, and Lord, which means God. This Christmas, we need to ask ourselves, who has our ear? Who are we listening to about the meaning of of Christmas, the meaning of Christ's first coming. It's so easy for us to be caught up with the shopping, caught up with all the Christmas songs, all the Christmas movies. I am amazed at how many Christmas movies Hallmark puts out every year. And they're all about the same (laughs) storyline. And as nice as those movies are, they don't really give us much about the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is about the coming of Christ, the coming of God's Messiah, God's Son. He came from heaven to become a man and yet remain God in order to provide us with salvation and a transformed life with Him forever. We need to keep listening to the authority of God's word for the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of Christ's coming. Well, in the book of 1 John, the Apostle John is addressing a problem that existed back in the first century church. Believers were not listening to the right authority for their definition of Christianity and who Christ is and what he came to do. And so he writes this letter to combat false teachers and false teaching, to encourage believers to get their doctrine of Jesus Christ and what he came to do from the Word of God, the the apostolic Word, which gives them the meaning of Christ, but also the meaning of salvation, and that By believing in the true Christ and having a true walk with God, they will have true Christ-like love for one another. 
You see, we must be discerning about who the true Christ is and what he came to do. You see, if people listen to the distorted message of Christmas from the world today, it's going to make all the difference between whether they have authentic joy versus shallow or fleeting happiness. It'll make all the difference between having true life in union with God and eternal life forever versus being eternally separated from God in hell forever. And so in chapter 4 of 1 John, he tells us how to be discerning about the true Christ and how that will have an impact on our relationship. So follow along as I read 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Thus far the reading of God's word. We're going to see how the devil and his spirits want to undermine the truth about Christ's coming. But believers will be discerning. And secondly, we'll see how believers will have a supernatural response to the truth of Christ's coming in the way they conduct themselves with one another. Well, in the first half of our text, John is dealing with discerning the truth of God made flesh. That's the first point. With tenderness, he addresses these believers as beloved. And then he gives them this charge. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We are to be discerning about what we believe. By spirits, John is uh, referring to the teaching of false teachers or 
those uh, who have the power behind them of a spiritual entity. See, we're unable to see spirits, but John wants them to know there are two spiritual spheres in our world. One is of the influence of the Holy Spirit, and the other is of the influence of the devil and his spirits. And so, we are to recognize which spirit by what they are teaching. And so, we're warned that there are many false prophets. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, that in the last days, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. We're living in the last days. The last days are from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So we are in the time of false prophets that have arisen or will still arise. So first, we're to see, point A, the test of truth. This word test was commonly used in the first century to test the genuineness of metal, to see how pure metal was. And here, the context means that believers are to determine the content and the source of teaching. How does he say we're to test them? He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. What is the test? The test is what people say, what these teachers say about the nature of Jesus. There are two aspects of the nature of Jesus or or his person. One is that he is deity. He is God. He pre-existed before he came to this earth as God. He was and is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That's his one nature. But then secondly, when Jesus came to this world, he took on a human nature, a human body, and yet without sin. In other words, he became 100% human and at the same time remaining 100% God. This is the doctrinal test about the person of Jesus Christ. And notice that John uses the perfect tense when he says Jesus has come in the flesh. That means he took on human flesh and he remained human. Yes, Jesus is human in heaven forever and ever and ever. He will be 100% human and 100% God. He took on a new nature. Now, why is this so important? Why do we recite the Nicene Creed that tells us about these two natures of Christ? Well, it's crucial to the gospel. It's crucial to how people are saved. You see, the gospel message is that mankind is born with a sinful nature, separated from God, in rebellion against God. And this is because the Bible tells us that God is utterly holy and righteous. He cannot accept sin in his presence. He demands perfect obedience to his commandments in thought, word, and deed. 
and all mankind falls short of this and therefore is not righteous and not acceptable before God. God cannot have fellowship with him. And furthermore, God is perfectly just. He must judge all sin. He cannot ignore it. And all people apart from Christ amass this great debt of sin. Even one sin would be enough to condemn us. But we sin against all of God's commandments and we accumulate thousands upon thousands of sins in our debt column throughout life apart from Christ. You know, when whiteboards came out, they were quite the sensation. Every teacher wanted one, but they had one flaw. If you used a regular permanent marker, what would happen? It would ruin the whiteboard. You couldn't get the marks off. Now later on they came with some kind of cleaning, came up with some kind of cleaning fluid to erase it. But think of our souls as whiteboards. Our souls have permanent marks on them. Sins that cannot be removed by ourselves. But God in his love and mercy promised to his people to provide perfect righteousness and to wipe away all of our sins and he did this through the sending of his son to this world to become a man and yet without sin you see it was crucial for the messiah to be both god and man he had to be a man to be our substitute to receive the punishment as a man in our place for our sins and to atone for our sins and he did this by going to the cross and having our sins transferred to him And he suffered, he bled, he died in our place. He was man so he could receive the punishment that we deserved as man and the curse of death that we deserved as man. He also had to be man to earn perfect human righteousness. See, this is what God requires. Perfect righteousness and atonement for sin, the payment of sin. But then why did he have to be God? Well, he had to be God in order to be a substitute for all his people. You see, if Jesus had just been a man and not God, he could only earn righteousness for one other man. He could only go to the cross and atone for the sins of one other man. But you see, being God, he could earn righteousness for all his people. He could endure the equivalent of hell for all his people on the cross. And furthermore, he had to be God in order to rise from the dead and apply his resurrection, life, and power and his victory over sin and death and the devil to all his people. And so this is the gospel. You must believe that you're a sinner, unable to save yourself. You must turn from trusting in yourself to save you and turn from your sin And believe in who Jesus is. And rely wholly on what he did for your salvation. And salvation is by grace alone in the biblical Christ alone. You see, the gospel relies on Jesus being both natures. God and man. No less or we don't have a true savior. And this is what the cults and the sects do. They call themselves Christians, 
but they either don't believe in the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. These folks are sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. They come to your doorstep, they tell you that they're Christians, but in essence they deny the true Christ of the Bible, and therefore they believe in a false gospel. But you see, this is not just the cults. All the major religions of the world deny God the Son has come in the flesh. And it isn't just the other religions. No, there are so-called Christian liberal theologians and pastors that deny many of the basic tenets of Christianity, like the deity of Christ. And you know that we live in a world today that thinks that you are intolerant if you believe in absolute truth, if you believe in the exclusivity of orthodox Christianity being the only way to heaven. We must be charitable with people who disagree with us and kind and loving, but at the same time, we must stand firm on these fundamental biblical truths about Christ. Well, he says in the second half of verse 3, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Someone has the spirit of the Antichrist when they hold themselves up as a teacher and promote unbiblical teaching about the nature of Christ. But you see, John does not want Christians to be discouraged about this. He gives, point B, the assurance of believers. In verse 4, you see, we are to have confidence that we are overcomers. Little children, he says, you are not from God, or you are from God, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, he wants to remind them first, they are God's children. He says, you are from God. That you is emphatic. Believers are new creations in Christ. We have a new heart, a new nature. We've been made God's children. He's brought us into his family. And so therefore, we are not to worry about these false teachers because we are his sheep. And his sheep hear his voice and follow him. And no one can snatch us out of his hands. Jesus is in us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus indwelling us. And he has overcome the devil. He has overcome this These false prophets, they will not prevail upon believers. They will not prevail upon the true church. Well, the third point that we're to see in this first section on discerning the truth of God made flesh is point C, the source of truth. Verse 5, John says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. John identifies these false teachers as not from God, but from the world, and ultimately from the devil, because the devil is the leader of the sphere of the world. And these truths that are opposed to the nature and work of Christ come from the world, come from the devil. And so we should not be surprised that the world gets Christmas wrong, and the world gets Christ wrong. We should not be surprised that they listen to all the false teaching of the world. But the flip side of this is John says his people will know the source of truth. 
John says in verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who are the we and the us? Well, he's referring to himself, John, and he's referring to the other apostles. You see, Jesus gave the apostles the authority and the revelation from God and the inspiration to write down God's word in the gospels and in the epistles. And we're told in Ephesians 2, verse 20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And by association, those who teach and preach the word of God are also included in this we. And all of us who believe and teach the truth of God's word. And so John says, those who listen to God will listen to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Well, now we turn to the second section in this passage. Here's where orthodoxy, in other words, sound theology or doctrine meets orthopraxy which means sound conduct or correct conduct or action here's where the truth of Jesus God made flesh impacts believers in the way they are to relate to one another in fact he says so much earlier on in his letter in 1 John chapter 3:23 he says and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy in that verse. In other words, you cannot love like God calls you to love if you don't embrace in your heart and mind the doctrine of who Christ is and what he came to do for you in the scriptures. But the main topic that John covers in this section is point number two, the love of God made flesh. In John's day, not only were there false teachers teaching a Christ that was not human, but they were also teaching that they had some kind of superior super knowledge and that you could be a super Christian if you adapted their secret knowledge that was in addition to or apart from the apostolic teaching. And this created all kinds of divisions in the church and pride within the church. And so John wants to emphasize, not only is it important that you discern the truth about Jesus being God made flesh, but true believers will know the love of God and will practice it towards others. And so he first gives them point A, the command to love and its source. Look at verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This love that John is talking about here is agape love. That Greek term agape means godly love. And this Love is distinct from other types of love. It's a love that is based on grace alone. And it's unconditional. It's not due to our performance. And it's an active love. It's a steadfast love. It's an infinite love. It's a sovereign love. And we are called to love this way. And yet we're also to recognize 
that we cannot produce this kind of love. In fact, the only way we can produce this love is by being born of God. And through the Holy Spirit, having union with God so that we know Him intimately. John says this kind of love will be evident in believers. It will be according to their new nature, their rebirth. But those who don't love this way, they don't actually know God because God is love. This term, God is love, is important to understand. It means that the overriding essential character of God is love. In other words, love motivates everything else that God does. And so as believers who have God indwelling us, His love ought to be the overriding essential characteristic of our lives as well and motivate everything that we do, everything that we think. And then John moves from the command and the source of God's love to point B here, the manifestation and purpose of God's love. How did God make his love known? Well, the ultimate way is found in verse 9 here. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. Here we see the doctrine of the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity is the eternally begotten Son. As it was stated in the Nicene Creed that we read earlier, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God. There are great mysteries associated with the Trinity, and this is one of them. The second person of the Trinity is God, the only begotten Son. Jesus is the one-of-a-kind, unique Son, sharing in the very nature of the Godhead. He is fully God. You see, our sin caused such a mess that only the Son of God himself could extricate us from it. And John says... The greatness of his love is also shown in the purpose of his love. The purpose of his sending his only son. Look at what it is at the very end of verse 9. So that we might live through him. What this presumes is that we don't live without Christ. Spiritually speaking, we are dead. That's what Ephesians 2.1 says. We are dead spiritually without Christ. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. And so the only hope for true life is through Christ, through his coming into the world to provide us with reconciliation with God. How did he provide reconciliation with God? Well, verse 10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's an old word we don't hear very much today, but in other modern translations, you might read atoning sacrifice. It means the same thing. It means that Jesus came to appease God's wrath, God's judgment for our sin. You see, God is angry with sin He cannot be reconciled by anything that we do. He must satisfy 
his demand of perfect holiness and perfect justice by punishing all sin. But by his grace, he provides that punishment for our sin through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, propitiation is God giving himself in his son for our sins. And then in verse 11 and 12, John comes back to his command to love. Not only because God is love and God lives in us, but now with this added force of showing how God loved us in Christ. He loved us in a certain way that is supposed to be a model for how we love one another. And so we see point C, the love of God is made visible. He says, beloved, if God so loved us. That word so means so intensely. He loved us so intensely that we also ought to love one another. You see, Christ's intense sacrificial love is the model for us, the incentive for us to love one another. The Lord loved us when we were spiritually dead, when we were rebels. And John is making the case that we ought to love this way. We ought to be bound to love others this way. And then he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John's making the point We can't see God. He is spirit. But how do people see God? They see God through the love of sending his son, Jesus Christ, becoming a man. But they also see it in the love that his people have for one another. This agape love will be evidence of God abiding in us and working in us. His love being perfected in us. And so we've seen in our text the truth of God's only Son made flesh and the love of God's only Son made flesh. So, what difference does this make to us? What application can we take away from the truths of this text? How does it make a difference in the way we think and the way we act? Well, let me ask you three questions. The first one is, have you confessed that Jesus is God the Son who came in the flesh to give new life and atone for your sins. You see, this is the response that God calls you to have to Christmas, to the coming of Christ. Those who are of God will believe, will receive Christ. Those who are not of God will reject Him. This is the apostolic teaching. Whoever listens to the apostolic testimony of Christ and believes is of God. You see, the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ are critical to believe. But you must know why they are critical to believe. Because Christ and who he is and what he did is the only way God has made for anyone to be saved. If you do not respond to this message of who Christ is and what he came to do with repentance and faith, you will not have eternal life. You will not have forgiveness of your sins. 
There are not two or more ways according to the the scriptures. There's only one way and all other ways are false. Secondly, are you testing the spirits and looking to God's word alone for the truth of Christmas? Who are you listening to? False teaching is everywhere. You know, bank tellers do not have to go through training to spot a counterfeit bill. They handle the real thing so much that they can tell the counterfeit when they see it, when they touch it. And we're to be like that too. We're to be so familiar with God's word and especially what God's word says about the nature of Christ and his work that we won't have too much trouble spotting counterfeit doctrines and their peddlers. We need to be discerning. We need to compare everything we hear with the scriptures. You see, some false teachers and some false movements teach that the spirit teaches beyond the word of God, teaches something in addition to the word of God. But you see, the role of the Holy Spirit is to teach and illumine and apply the scriptures to our lives. And so I ask you, does the spirit have your ear? If the spirit has your ear, then you're going to be listening to him as you read his word, as you keep your eyes on the truth about Christ and the scriptures. Well, finally, Jesus commanded us to love one another, didn't he? When he was up in, up in the upper room with his disciples, he said, you're to love one another as I have loved you. This is a new commandment that I give to you. It wasn't a new command to love. It was a new command to love as he has loved them. See, God's love was manifested by his only son becoming a man in order to live a righteous life in our place and to receive the wrath of God in our place for all of our sins. He humbled himself by becoming a man. He laid aside all of his experience in glory to become a man in order to be our savior. He sacrificed himself. He absorbed the punishment that we deserve on the cross. You know, at Christmas time, it's a certain kind of social pressure, isn't it, to, to be nice and to be cheerful, to be charitable, to be generous, and that's a good thing. But this command to love with agape love is something altogether different. John is talking here about God's love. The love that he has had toward us. The love that caused him to send his son. That motivated his son to become a man. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love without, without discovery of its depth. It's a constant love. It's the love that caused him to suffer. And now we as believers who are born of God, who have been loved first by God, the only reason that we are to seek to love others is because now his love is in us and we've been loved this way. And so the third application question is, are you seeking ways to love one another with God's supernatural love manifested in the coming of Christ? In what ways is God challenging you to love this way this season? In what ways is he challenging you 
to forgive those who have offended you, to overlook offenses, to absorb offenses against you. God's love is manifested to us in Christ, and our love for God is manifested in our love for others. And in this way, he says, the invisible God is made visible. The one who truly loves God will love his brother sacrificially and compassionately and will continue to forgive 70 times 7. This is how love is perfected in us as we continue to rely on his love to love one another. Maybe you've been hurt by someone recently. Maybe even someone in this church. Well, we are called to sacrificially seek reconciliation and not give up. We are to forgive even if the offender does not recognize his or her sin or the depth of their sin. Husbands and wives, don't hold grudges. Don't allow the sun go down on your anger. Apologize. Forgive with this supernatural, unlimited reservoir of God's love that you have. I love what Corey Ten Boom said. Forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It is a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. The late Francis Schaeffer called the active and observable oneness of love between true Christians as the best way for the world to recognize the reality of Christianity. And so, to the degree that you know how much of a sinner you are and how much you have been forgiven in Christ and loved in Christ, to that degree, you're going to love others with this agape love. May that be true of your life, your family, your relationships, and of this church. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the truth and love of God made flesh in Christ. Thank you for the example. Thank you for the power we have. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are in heaven as human and divine. You understand us. You've done everything necessary for our redemption, for our reconciliation with God. And you provide us with all the means that we need to love as you've loved us. Not perfectly. We will never do it perfectly in this life, but you've given us the ability to progress and to grow in this love for one another and for you. So Lord, we pray for a fresh outpouring of your spirit to enable us to love this way and to know your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.